Hey everyone, let's get the show started. Welcome to our DevOps office hours. It is October 26th, 2022. My name's Eric Osterman and I'll be leading the conversation. I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Posse. If you're struggling with what it takes to operate successfully in AWS, you're not alone. The good news is that Cloud Posse has helped countless companies just like yours turn things around. We have a proven repeatable process that we help companies implement. If you're curious to learn more, head over to cloudposse.com quiz. Again, that's cloudposse.com quiz to take the first step. For those of you new to the call, the format's very informal. My goal is to get your questions answered today. So feel free to unmute yourself at any time if you want to jump in and participate. If you're tuning in from our podcast or YouTube channel, you can register for these live and interactive sessions by going to cloudposse.com slash office hours. Again, that's cloudposse.com slash office hours. We host these calls every week. Our call today is recorded. We'll automatically post a recording of this session to our YouTube channel. Yes, automatically. Uh, so if you enjoy our content and want to support the channel, please hit those like and subscribe buttons. Uh, just go to youtube.com slash cloud posse. Again, youtube.com slash cloud posse. So announcements. I'm pretty light on announcements today, but um, here's what I got. So the first one is something I'm really excited about. If you are a Spacelift user, uh, a few days ago, they released uh, a very, very, very minor feature change, probably one line of code or something, uh, but it makes all the difference. So looking at this pull request here, um, uh, this is changing the cluster size uh, for a demo uh, from a desired size of uh, three to four in our case. Um, the default is three, which is uh, evident if we were looking somewhere else. So when that happens, um, our policy is to check every affected stack, every affected Terraform root module that could be affected. Previously, it was binary. A check would fail, like the Terraform plan fails. It would be an X, and it succeeds for any reason. It would be a check mark, a green check mark, including no changes. And that really sucks when you have possibly a, a larger blast radius uh, that, that gets checked here. So what's really awesome is this one change here results in us seeing that there's no impact on our ACM certificates, no impact on backups, no impact on Datadog, no impact on the ALB controllers or AWS node termination handler, et cetera. And coming down here, oh, okay, here we start to see. All right, so it looks like uh, there is some impact for some reason on S3 access logs. That probably means that there's some unconfirmed change out there that hasn't yet been applied. And if we were to merge this pull request, now we know these are specifically the affected stacks by this change. Then one can do other things like policies, of course, you know, but there should only, there should never be more than one or two or something like that uh, affected stacks. So any questions on this feature? All right, next, uh, here are some that were shared with me. One is that, hey, if you're managing an organization with ClickOps, AKA control tower, then this would be a great way to rename all the AWS account email addresses centrally uh, to clean them up. Now in organizations that have been on AWS for a long time and have you know, a, a mess of email addresses, it was a real pain in the butt to log into each account 
and reset that root account email address. Now you can do that programmatically. Uh, our convention for uh, root account email addresses is to use plus addressing. So you'll create like a distribution list like AWS or uh, you know AWS uh, notifications or something like that. And then use plus addressing for each account that goes over there. So that's easier now if you want to do it with ClickOps. Uh, another one um, is that AWS Batch now supports uh, running the workloads inside of a EKS cluster. Um, you know, if you are a gung-ho Kubernetes shop, you might be scratching your head like, why do I need AWS Batch to do that? Like, that's like what Kubernetes jobs are for, or um, uh, what's the... What's the uh, the uh, workflow engine, I forget, um, that a lot of companies are using uh, to, to manage workflows on top of Kubernetes. I forget what it's called. Anyways, that's probably what one would use instead. But hey, if you're already using AWS Batch and you have existing uh, capacity in your clusters, you want to leverage maybe some policy controls you have in your clusters uh, or resources, or maybe use Batch to operate on things inside of your EKS clusters. Perhaps this is a uh, good solution. Oh, 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 excuse me. All right. Anything to add to this? All right. Next two announcements. Um, we're trending on Reddit. Uh, one was a way to, um, was, was it just a write-up? Uh, it's nothing uh, new. It's just uh, a, a an argument to be made here, we, we brought this up probably over a year or two ago, like in Terraform, should use remote state or not. When I'm talking about remote state, we're talking Terraform remote state, which is technically a data source as well. Or should you use like data lookups? And uh, the argument uh, this, ar uh, this article makes is you should use the data lookups. And I forget right now why um, we were less bullish on this before. I think it might've been due to like count of problems or something, but uh, those have largely gone away nowadays. Um, so yeah, anyone have something to add? Anybody a strong advocate for or against data sources? Also one, one nice thing to highlight is data sources now universally, at least the AWS ones support a filter argument so you can um, do a better job filtering. That was always a limitation previously of using some of the data sources. Maybe one thing I could add is that sometimes it's hard to, like there's some, some I guess, types of data that um, uh, will not get propagated through resources that you can connect to through data sources, right? So like, I don't know, maybe in your um, core stack, you uh, define some tags or, you know, some bucket names or something like that. Um, and you don't want to have to know those names off the bat. So it's a lot easier to get them from the remote state. Although I guess you could store them in other places, perhaps in, um, you know, uh, uh, AWS uh, um, parameters. Uh, but uh, I think there are some situations where it's going to be hard to uh, avoid. Yeah. Hmm. Forget what else. Uh, I, I know I had a counter arguments for it, but I don't have it right now. So, 
we, we still use a lot of Terraform remote state. Um, we've kind of created our own framework around it uh, using Terraform. So we can use a Terraform module that very easily resolves uh, any output from any Terraform module. Um, kind of strengthening your point, one of the nice things is uh, if you're managing your own uh, remote state, you can also manage you know, metadata values, things that are like composites of lots of other values, things like uh, endpoints to uh, exactly and things like that. Yeah. All right. So that was that point. And then the last one kind of. Uh, I mean, it, it, if I can make one more point, I, it would actually be nice if you could separate that part of the state out into other mini states, you know, like if you can break up the the state um, so that uh, the outputs could be saved separately or something like that, so that you wouldn't have to get the whole state when you... Yeah, I totally agree with that for multiple reasons, because the, the normal state is sensitive by default. It has... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it would be nice if by convention, Terraform physically stored it in a separate file Mm -hmm. so yeah, I am policies one could gate access. So yes, you can re read the remote state, re remote outputs of anything, but you can't read the state of that object of that uh, root module. That would be nice. Yeah, because right now it's all in the same JSON blob uh, stored in S3. Um, so the next one was a nice. Uh, if you will, cheat sheet. Uh, it's a little bit longer than a cheat sheet, but it goes over the most common types of operations you're going to want to perform using loops uh, uh, within Terraform. So how to uh, filter a set of values, how to uh, group a set of values, for example, and uh, how to create transformations of those values, what he's calling mutations. <laughs> So anybody who's doing a lot of Terraform, this is pretty straightforward, but maybe something you always got to go to Stack Overflow every time to look up. Any other announcements that I missed? That was a slow news week for me. The AWS console added dark mode. Ah, really? Okay, yeah, that's worthy of a, an announcement. And for the... Folks that do SQS first in, first out, they increase the limit, the throughput to 6,000 transactions per second. They oh. doubled it. Nice. I pasted the links in the Zoom chat. All right, let me add those. <clears throat> Any other announcements, uh, everyone? I just shared this awesome self-hosted AWS repository. Self-hosted AWS repository. Uh, where did you share it? Was it also in the chat or? Uh... Yeah, in the chat for this uh, meeting. All right, let's see here, chat. So... so interestingly enough, RDS is missing, which is the one thing that I would like to build right now. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, this is as opposed to like, as opposed to being, yeah. as, as opposed to using AWS, this would be to okay. help you build AWS internally. Oh, okay. So this is not like for local development per se, something that local stack attempts to solve, but not at scale. But these are like, uh, yeah. So if you like, don't, if, if, if you're anti, if you're, if you're hostile to a public cloud 
then this is the repository where they're trying to put together the projects that might allow you to build your own stack. <laughs> All without saying OpenStack. <laughs> well, I don't think OpenStack is one of those. Well, I mean, uh, it has all the primitives of uh, uh, at least older version of AWS. Well, but, uh, but, but if I look at if I look at this list, I don't recall seeing OpenStack as one of these. No, exactly, which is why I'm criticizing it. <laughs> um, well, I mean, the OpenStack has primitives for EC2, has primitives for object storage, has primitives for volumes, has primitives for all those things, and it's self-hosted. The person who shared this with me told me like a week ago that OpenStack is dead. Okay, I, I, I do think so. Uh, I, I, I would also add that this list hasn't been updated in four years. Wow. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really interesting comment. Uh, because that person is now operating on AWS. <laughs> I don't know. There, there, you know, there's been posts lately also. Well, Who's the company that most recently uh, came out and said they just moved uh, on to bare metal again? Um, caused a little bit of a stir. I don't remember now. Anyways, you know, there's always going to be some of these posts. I guess at a certain scale, you know, it might make sense for some companies, but. I can't share with you the name, but I know of other companies that are talking about it. Yeah. No, yeah. it was Basecamp slash Thirty Seven Signals. Oh, yes, that was that was the one. post with yeah. drama. Yeah, that was the post I was thinking of. Thanks, Blood. You're like an extension of my memory. It's helpful. Um, all right, so that was that. Um, under announcements, or so that was done with announcements. So talking points. Um, uh, well, first, let's answer one of the questions was in our um, community here. Uh, they're asking about how to enforce uh, MFA in AWS if you're not using SSO, so traditional uh, IAM users and groups. So Matt Gowie did post the correct answer here. Um, if you're not aware, uh, you can um, uh, specify a condition that, infor uh, that requires uh, MFA to be present. Um, it gets a little trickier than this. Um, let's see if this is doing it. Okay. Uh, so uh, one of the problems with this rule as it is, I believe is uh, the user cannot initially set up their MFA if MFA was not set up before. So you're gonna need a more complex uh, policy in order to manage uh, that. I, I think we have some old module from back in the day when we used to do this, but um, these days we just use uh, SSO. So if you look at this module, Terraform AWS IAM Zoom roles and under main, uh, here we define the policies uh, you would wanna enable uh, to set up this architecture. All right, um, I'll add that link here. Anything to add to this? I think I ran into some issues with, uh, we still had service users for some like third parties. 
and uh, a service user is a user, so you have to figure out, you know, might have to use a filter to, you know, on tags or something like that to filter them out of this. Yeah, that's true. Um, this is though based on roles, I believe. So uh, the roles, basically you set up this policy so that to assume a role, you have to have MFA. Um, so it's not at the user level, it's at the role level. And then those roles that you would use for those service accounts wouldn't have that policy. All right. Um, last question, or the, the question that I had is, um, anybody who was attending last week or just in general uh, using Atmos, if you have any questions uh, based on that, um, I'd be happy to uh, try and answer those. I'm definitely gonna watch that one, Eric. I couldn't attend the last uh, couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, I asked for that, I think. Cool. Well, uh, this is recorded. Yeah, it's definitely recorded. Um, I think one of the biggest uh, shortcomings right now is documentation. Um, we are hopefully going to get the first, uh, well, the, the next version of the docs out um, sometime this weekend or early next week and then continue iterating on that. Hey, Sean, uh, I, uh, I just saw you join. Uh, did you uh, hear our uh, answer uh, for your IM question? Uh, no, I just joined, but I, I can just look at the YouTube video. You don't have to say it again. Okay, cool, cool. Um, let's see. Any other questions then? I'm out of questions, uh, that were staged. Do you mind posting the link to, um, that cheat sheet, the filtering, um, oh yeah. Well, yeah, Linda, Linda's going to post all the links. Uh, I guess you can do that. Oh, now. right. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Any uh, any other questions for today? I just tried to Google Atmos cheat sheet. Ah, no cheat sheet yet. I do want to do that. It came up recently. Uh, RB brought it up uh, just this week. Uh, we were talking about something else. So I think we'll be putting a cheat sheet together because even there's so many commands and supports that even we forget what it is. So. Um, all right. Well, if no other questions, we uh, did discuss another possible topic here. So like we can see if it has legs. It's it's adjacent to everything else we've talked about before, but not totally in the same realm. Uh, any home automation enthusiasts? Anybody using Home Assistant uh, or things like that? Yes. 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 Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. All right. Um, any? Uh, what is the uh, What's what's your favorite thing about what you're doing about it or with it? Not all at once. <laughs> wow, this is a short discussion. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I can uh, I can let's see if I I'll uh, I'll can I yeah. can I can I say what I would like to do? Okay, yeah. And I'm like trying to find possibly people who are like-minded. So I don't like the idea that my home automation depends on the internet. Yeah, or actually I realized one thing I did wrong. Hold, hold that thought. 
since not everyone might be uh, familiar with this topic, let me just introduce the area that we're talking about uh, and see if that helps uh, a little bit. So home automation, uh, you know, it's been around for a while. In the nascent days, uh, uh, people were just hobbyists doing it at home. Uh, there were Kickstarters that brought about products like smart things and then a proliferation of different hubs uh, similar to that. Um, but th these were very early adopters or early you know, products that suffered some collateral damage with the movement uh, of the industry. And you know, smart things, they just shut, they stopped manufacturing, they, they offloaded that to another company, I forget who it is. There's been a lot of bankruptcies and failures in the home automation space. Uh, it's difficult for companies to produce products, I guess, um, that don't have a mandatory subscription fee, but have a hosted platform. And the more successful they get, the more slammed they get by millions of devices hitting them. So there's been this counter movement, uh, I would say, of introducing uh, like self-posted um, home automation alternatives. And it's almost like, you know, in the earlier days of cloud, there was Heroku, let's say, uh, and then people moved into things like AWS. And uh, that's not probably the proper order of operations, but when you wanna start, you know, hosting your own Kubernetes cluster and so forth, uh, there's a point that makes sense. In home automation, it's a little bit the same, the same way, and there's uh, a consolidation of platforms out there. And I, arguably, I would say that Home Assistant is the number one home automation platform today, with runners up being like uh, Open Hub or something, and Hubitat, and then you have the uh, like the consumer grade automation platforms like like uh, Amazon's uh, Alexa, Google Home, and uh, Apple Home, uh, and so forth. The problem with every vendor solution out there is that they only work with like certified products or they only work with products they build. And there's all these unnecessary fractures in the home automation space. So then Matter has come out. Matter is this protocol that's supposed to unify all home automation devices. And then I saw how like SmartThings is implementing it and they're, they're, they're gonna accept Matter, but they're not gonna expose their own APIs through Matter. So then you still can't talk to anything inside of SmartThings. So Home Assistant solves all of these problems. Home Assistant is the Kubernetes of home automation. You self-host it on a Raspberry Pi or somewhere at home on your network, and it can automate everything from your Peloton bike to your Tesla, to your swimming pool, to your, air conditioners and ACs and nest units and uh, you know power switches and fans. There's nothing I haven't been able to automate yet with it. <laughs> All right. Now, Ralph, what do you uh, wanna do with Home Assistant? So I have some devices. Every device that I buy comes with a new app. Yeah, I hate that. And Eventually I lose control of every device because I don't remember what the app is that belongs to which device and these things become bricks. Either that or they become LED light bulbs that you just switch on and off with a light switch because you know at least they have that function which still works. But I would like to gain control of this. Uh, 
milieu of uh, devices. And I know that now we're running into the problem with Linux, right? Which is how do I find device drivers for all of these things? And yeah. Nope, go on. And I would, and I would like to be able to, uh, you know, I don't mind writing some software, right? I mean, I don't really, really I don't really care for Ift to manage yeah. my life. Um, I'm a little bit worried when uh, you know some external entity has control of my very personal devices and could turn on a light in the middle of the night. You know, something went wrong. So th there is a little bit of a security uh, issue here. But aren't all these addressed with Home Assistant because it's self-hosted? Yeah. Okay. I think they. I think they are. Okay. Now. What I don't know is how many of the devices that I have may already be hacked with Home Assistant. How do you mean hacked? You well, mean... that I could actually control them. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would, I would, by default, I would assume uh, that it is supported, uh, unless you went with a really off-brand uh, knockoff of some mainstream thing. But uh... yeah. look at their integrations. They have yeah. a whole list of stuff they integrate with. And, and I think that's the, the key to that I've noticed when working with Home Assistant is before you before you buy devices or you're looking to, to integrate, check if they integrate with Home Assistant and how well they, they integrate. There, there's a, it's a pretty well built out community and you'll find a lot of people who've, are, who've pretty much done a lot of the stuff that you're wanting to do already. And so the key is finding those devices that work well with it and then standardizing those in your house. You're going to find that some things are a little wonky that they just don't work as well. And you might have to end up, you know, swapping it out down the line for something else. All right. So let's make this more tangible. So uh, here's my home and here's what I'm doing with home assistant. Um, first of all, uh, it's turned a page. Like a lot of these open source home automation things used to look really ugly. Uh, home assistant has come out with a totally new refreshed UI. That's pretty modern. Uh, and it's fully skinnable. There's even like Apple Home Kit skins you can get for it if you want to do that. But here's everything I have integrated, everything from iCloud, which needs to be reconnected, all my Roombas, um, the external services like uh, AccuWeather, my Apple TVs, Bluetooth integrations, uh, Bond, which is a controls my fireplace. Um, this is a uh, on my Samsung TVs. Uh, those are all connected. All of my um, Google Nests are connected with the wrong address and uh, Apple HomeKit, which is amazing. So you get everything into Home Assistant and then every device, almost no, nothing supports Apple Home. Like you, you, you'll have a very primitive Apple Home experience if you are just trying to buy devices made for Apple Home. But when you use Home Assistant, I can expose almost everything in my entire home now. To Apple Home. So that makes the wife very happy because it's very easy uh, to, to use Apple Home. Uh, my printers, um, Peloton bike, Hue Bridges, my sprinkler system, my uh, electricity monitors, smart things for uh, backwards compatibility, Sonos, Teslas, Spotify, uh, my, all my routers and switches, even Zoom. Uh, Zigbee and um, Z-Wave. So 
it adds up to hundreds, if not thousands of entities and devices across all of this that can be centrally managed with automations. But get this, it's so easy to use these things if you are like in our industry and what we do. So there's a plugin to add Grafana. So I have uh, now Grafana visibility into uh, my house. That's awesome. So here you can see the precipitation over you know, the past year, uh, the whole house energy usage coming from my sense. Uh, you know, this is the, the Raspberry Pi's throughput, so it's pretty low uh, on that note. How, how we're doing on the CPU temperature of the Raspberry Pi and so forth. But cool automations that I've been able to do with this then is like, if, um, if the uh, temperature in the server room gets too hot, turn on the AC. Uh, what I'm gonna set up next is if my internet goes down uh, on my router for more than five minutes, reboot the power to the router so that it will usually self-heal and recover. If uh, you know my um, uh, backup route doesn't work, so that kind of stuff. Any questions? I was gonna say I also have integrations with um, Linode and DigitalOcean, and you uh, can integrate those in. You can you can even put them on a panel to where you can turn servers on and off with the button. Interesting. <laughs> that, yeah, I have, I, I, have, I have seen, there are companies that use this kind of for back office development uh, and providing a dashboard. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of cool automations. Like I've, I've done some stuff where on certain days I have um, my bedroom light turn on at certain times and it wakes me up instantly without even an alarm going off. Yep. You can set um, all your, you can do the, the geo, geo circles around different places and have certain automations trigger based on geolocation as well for like, you, you know, if you leave, when you leave the house, you can have it automatically lock the doors, turn lights off, all that stuff. You can yep. do timers for lights, turning them off and on randomly when you're on vacation to make people think you're at home. Yep. All of that. All right. Well, just, just uh, out of um, curiosity, what, what's the overhead cost of setting up <clears throat> your, um, I guess, outlets and plugs and stuff like that? Uh, has anyone ever costed that? Like, you know, is it on average, I don't know, 20 bucks per outlet or 50 bucks or like what's, what are we looking at here? It is prohibitively expensive if you have to hire <laughs> an electrician to do it. But if, uh, you know, it's very basic once you get the hang of it. So buying, uh, buying it and doing it yourself uh, is going to be the cheapest route. Oh, I see. Yeah. The, uh, the switch, like I, I went with Z-Wave. Uh, if I did it again, I would do Zigbee. But all the Z-Wave uh, switches are about 35, 40 bucks each. Um, and take about, you know, five, 10 minutes to install each. But yeah, that's running back and forth between the breaker box <laughs> on top of it. How much time do you think uh, it would take to set this up in uh, with Home Assistant? Uh, it's a labor of love. It is. It's a constant labor done. of love. Well, we, which which means it's endless time. Yes. Yeah. Because there's you're, endless yeah. things you can do with it. Right? Yeah. You're always well, getting to it. I get that, but I'm I'm like wondering, like the initial getting the devices that I have, which might be ten, to actually do anything. Uh, that's not, right. you know, I, I switched over 100 devices in one weekend from smart things to home assistant. Um, it did not make my wife happy. I was unavailable, but I, uh, I was able to do that. 
So, it does a pretty good job of auto discovering a lot of stuff and creating yes. like default panels for you to play with too. So you can you can relatively get you know out of the box running within a couple hours easy. Agreed. I agree. I had okay. never touched the Raspberry Pi before this. I had never, you know, played with any of this before this, and I got it up in a few hours. I was pleasantly surprised. And yeah. and to Oliver's point earlier, I haven't had to mess with any kernel drivers. I haven't had to mess with, uh, you know, any of that level thing. Yes, you do have to get messy with configurations every now and then, but it's so cool. Like, there's literally visual uh, VS Code running on my Raspberry Pi. So when I want to edit the configuration, I can just go to the Raspberry, to the VS code and start editing uh, that configuration. <laughs> yeah, I, I got mine running on Docker on a uh, Mac mini. So yeah. you, you can, you can it's, it's very flexible. You can run these on, uh, on the, was it the QNAS that they can run Docker on them? Yeah, you can so, do, you see a lot of people do that as well. Yep. I have two questions. Yeah, go for it, Isaac. How much of it can be done with Terraform? And then the other one is, it's called Home Assistant, and I don't have a home. So if I live in an apartment, what's like, does anyone yeah. do this stuff with an apartment? It looks like a lot of work. Yeah. It, it, you said that you pick on what you do. Like uh, you could do a lot of the Hue uh, lights because you have the, the wireless bridge. So you could use that for your light control. You just got to get picky on what you're going to do as far as how you're going to implement it um, without, you know, changing stuff in your apartment. So it's still doable. I, I, in, in, before I bought a house, I had an apartment. I, I replaced the switches in the apartment. I did what you said with the hue bulbs. I replaced the, I, I put the August lock on it. Yeah. I installed the Nest thermostats everywhere. So, I mean, it, it just, you have to, some of it you might have to remove. Some of it you might just consider as a sunk cost or whatever that you lose when you move out. Uh, you are upgrading the uh, unit for them, but. A lot, of, a lot of things are a lot of things are plug in the wall or screw into a light socket kind of things yeah. that you can take with you. Yeah. But I guess well, so Terraform, uh, I think you could maybe, but yeah, I I am I, I am embarrassed to say that my home assistant is entirely click ops. Uh, and I do same. Shame, shame. When do when do, when do you see Atmos supporting this? Yeah, you know, I, we need to look into adding the uh, the add-on for that. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, before I uh, talk about this all day, I want to make sure we capture other people's uh, questions. It doesn't have to be about this. AWS, DevOps, Terraform. Anybody think of something else they want to ask today? Yeah, I actually, I actually have one. I saw it on, I think it was a Reddit AWS subreddit. And it struck me that it is a really tough question. Someone was curious, how do they get good at IAM? It's so large and you know, <laughs> nebulous. And, and I, I don't know the answer to that question either, but uh, I'm curious what, what helped other people kind of wrap their head around IAM. And it's, and it's various parts. I wish I could. Yeah, I don't have the answer. Trial and error. It would be really interesting. Is there a great IAM playground out there? That would be a, an interesting uh, thing. And the other really... There, there, 
sorry, go ahead. There's the policy simulator, I guess, but it's, yeah, not yeah. super, in some cases, not super easy to use. Yeah. And I don't think that's the, you know, the policies themselves have never been, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, the, the issue, like they don't seem all that hard, right? The, yeah. I personally think that the thing that I've seen everybody struggle with and I've realized, oh, wow, most of my, um, you know, actually guiding clients, helping them understand is cross account stuff where um, AWS, you know, cross account IAM role assumption and all that fun stuff is just, that's the thing that, you know, there's multiple moving parts. They have to be self-referential sometimes. Yeah. Um, that's the stuff that's hard. And I feel like it, it, there isn't a good way to to learn that. I've I've thought about that recently because we're you know writing docs for for clients, mm. um, and it's it's just difficult. Uh, yeah, I don't really know um, other than like seeing it and actually making it work yourself. Um, I feel like that's the you know the path that most of us have taken, and that's that's what gets you there to be like have that light bulb moment of like okay now I get this. And then there'll be something, you know, next month that you didn't understand and you'll figure it out and you'll put the pieces together. But um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a hard topic because it's just all consuming in AWS. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, uh, I work somewhere we're trying to get developers more interested in understanding uh, what they're doing with, with resources and not just giving stars on stars. But one, it's hard to get them really interested in that stuff. And I kind of don't blame them. And on the other hand, it's not really easy because you have to use not just one tool, but a couple of tools. You have to use IAM Live. You have to look at the, the AWS tool that uses your CloudTrail logs to look at permissions and stuff. And it, it's frustrating. Yeah. But um, another thing I saw was, go on. I was going to say, one of the things that we use is uh, Detective. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have really looked into it, but inside of Detective, uh, when you're running uh, a query or you're doing something, you can actually find out which one, you can see the success rate of those queries inside of it. And then you can, it'll tell you exactly what it's failing on. And then you can use that to get your, you know, least privileged uh, permissions. And I, I've done that a lot. It works great. That is so cool. I never knew about that. Yeah. So when you turn uh, detective on, one of the things it does, it, it, it looks for like anomalies as far as logins and things like that, but it also checks all of your, um, like everything that's been run as far as uh, whatever role or whoever's running things, it gives you success rates in all the failures. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so from there you can actually drill down into it and it tells you what's mm -hmm. failing and why it's failing, what, what permissions it's missing. And then you can go back and fix those. So you can start off with no permission and then work your way forward. I'm question. Does this question apply? I don't know if you use uh, Google cloud or not, um, but I'm just curious, like, are people just as frustrated on Azure or GCP with IAM as users are on AWS? I'm so interested by if anybody has an answer to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've heard good things about GCP in that regard, but then also I don't think people are doing, they just have projects, which makes a lot of things simpler. But yeah, if anybody has an answer. I think GCP is easier. In, in regards to, uh, you know, you're like new, you don't know what rights to give people. The, the way that they've done it is just more obvious as to what you should. Are you able them. to contrast it though? Cause that's a little bit abstract. Um, one thing I did notice when I was looking into this topic is that they have like one long page with a list of 
permission references on GCP, but I've never used GCP, so I don't know how helpful that is to someone who's building policies, but I thought it was cool and I wished AWS had something like that. Uh, I posted a link in the chat. But I also posted a link in the chat to something that came up from that Reddit discussion. Like it's a new tool, I think they're still building it um, to help you with IAM and Terraform. Is it Air IAM or was it another one? I'm trying to No, remember. it's a different one. It's called IAM Pulse. Huh. Pulse? Yep. Hmm, I haven't heard about this one. So let's see here. But it, this is not open source then. This is like a service itself. Yeah, I don't really know. I didn't have a chance to look into it, but yeah. I know there was another tool like Air IAM that came out and it was really interesting how it worked and it did not, I, maybe it is Air IAM, but what was different about this one is it did not require IAM access analyzer, cloud trails or any of those things. And it just looked at the raw Terraform like requests or something. Uh, and it was able to deduce what permissions you needed. You're not talking about I am live, are you? Uh, that does not sound familiar, but um, let's see, generate I am policy called using client-side monitoring proxy. Interesting. Something like this though, yeah. I don't think it was this tool, but yeah, something like this. That's cool. I haven't heard about this one. Start that. So basically, I am live is a man in the middle proxy, and then uh, it can generate your uh, policies based on it. Yeah, pretty much. That's what it does. Yeah. Cool. Any uh, any other questions for today? Anybody played with OS Mac OS Ventura yet? Yeah. Mixed results. The continuity with the camera is annoying. I'm not haven't figured out how to properly do that. And I say annoying is. My phone has a pop-up on like every 10 minutes and it's telling me to disable it or whatever. And I have to disable like six times before it go away. Hmm. So right now I feel like it's kind of buggy still. This is where you can use your phone as a web external webcam. Yeah. You can use your, your, and you can also use the microphone as well. No, I don't play with it. Yeah. The, well, the cool thing is when it works, it works well. Like the, um, so the, it uses the, the wide angle camera. And the Belkin has come out with a mount that mounts to the top of your laptop and it'll sit there and then it use the wide angle camera and you can do like a, a top down desk view. This solves the, uh, my phone has a better camera than my laptop problem. It does. And that's, that's one of the reasons why they came out with it is because hmm. the camera is way better. And so you can use like the uh, center stage and all that stuff. Yeah, not only is it a better camera, it's just easier to point at things. But I mean, it's it's not bad. I feel like the iOS uh, is also snappier. 
as far as quickness. Cool. Is anybody yeah. waiting for the new? Um, I guess I guess they'll be considered late 2022 MacBook Pros. Um, yeah. I was just looking into them about a month or two ago, and I'm I'm waiting, and I still haven't heard any news. Are those going to be the M2s, or are M2s already out? I don't. I no, know. I think there's a set of M2s that are already out, and I think these will be M2s as well. Okay. If anybody has an M2, be interested to hear if you like it or had issues. Too new. Okay. Yeah. M1 Pro. Is there a command uh, that will let you somehow stream CloudTrail logs live? Or do you have to set up some Lambda that goes to Kinesis and a big larger apparatus? You want the old tail minus F. Yeah, basically <laughs> tail F AWS. That's another big bone I have to pick with AWS is that CloudTrail is just, it's shit. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's great. It, they, they do a good job of collecting all your events, but like they give you, if you ever go to the CloudTrail console, it's totally useless. Yeah. It's a masterclass in itself. Yeah, especially when you get a Terraform uh, error, it has a request ID and you can't filter on request ID. Basically, you have to look at all all the events with that column. Yeah, ID. yeah. If they just it's provided like one that. service that was AWS request ID, <laughs> that you could yeah. look up those request IDs and like get information about them. The only reason you can use those is with support. Support's the only folks who can actually look up request IDs, as far as I understand. And then, huh. why it's that's so frustrating. It is. Uh, you just jerked my memory about another question I had. Uh, I was recently tasked with looking into just the overall uh, security posture for our AWS accounts. And I saw this tool called uh, Cloud Suite. And I was wondering if anyone has used it. What was it called? Cloud Suite? Scout oh. Suite. Scout. I think it's the first thing on that page you're looking at. Okay, yeah, I, I just stumbled on this one. So let's see here, Scout. That was, that was the first one here, yeah. NCC group, Japanese uh, telecom. Yeah, anybody use Scout Suite? 14, two months ago. It uh, What scares me here is it's not under two active development, it looks like. Let's see here, 662, 15 days ago. Oh, okay. I, 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 I take that back. There's recent pull requests. We use Wazoo. How oh, interesting. Latacora has been using it. Latacora is a SecOps for hire uh, company that we uh, were friends with. If you're looking for um, someone to start up your SecOps. Um, 
Yeah, anything else to add before this? Uh, one comment, maybe on something like uh, Air IAM, which reminds me a lot of the um, the service that AWS started providing. Uh, I don't know, six months ago, where you know, if you go to the IAM console, you'll see something like uh, IAM can now, you know, generate uh, a policy from your CloudTrail events, from something like that, um, because that's something that I was interested in uh, a while back i wanted to you know do this release privileges uh for some uh for a um, uh, terraform uh stack that i was provisioning and uh in practice though it, it kind of took me semi by surprise although it, maybe it's obvious in in hindsight um i found that the what you get from that kind of service that that looks at your you know at, that that permissions that that, that have failed or you know I, uh, um, AWS uh, uh, API action that have failed uh, is that it tends to be much too uh, fine grained. Uh, you know, having a policy that has every little thing that your current Terraform stack requires, it, in practice, I found unmanageable in the end. Uh, just, there's just too much detail in there. And as soon as you, like, for one thing, you know, you'd have to go through a complete uh, Terraform create, update, and destroy to get all the possible permissions. Uh, and then if you change one little thing somewhere, like a parameter, you know, for S3 or something, you'll be missing some. And then, so then what do you do? You have to go through that process again. It's a bit silly, you know? So you have to find a, a good balance between a good set of permissions that will last a while without giving too much permission, but also not, you know, restrict too much either. So. And, and in a GitOps context, it's more and more futile. Uh, I mean, you're not going to be probably having a provisioning role for every single component that you're going to be deploying. Uh, it's usually going to be a shared role that can deploy things within Terraform. And you're going to shift this left to a policy-based approach that sits even past uh, IAM uh, before you even get there. What I think therefore is the most important is what are your IAM policies and roles that your services need, but the IAM policies and roles that humans need, I mean, uh, humans shouldn't be doing anything pretty much in staging and production. And in dev, humans need to be able to iterate and play with things. So it's gonna be administrator or maybe not in dev, but a sandbox, however your org what organization wants to do it. And then you're gonna to wanna to have policy controls instead uh, at your deployment layer, which says that uh, certain teams can do certain kinds of operations, like they can you know, change database characteristics, but they can't destroy databases. They can uh, you know, deploy services to Kubernetes, uh, but they can't destroy namespaces or things like that. So I think it's a uh, somewhat lost cause and an a, a, uh, antiquated approach to pursuing policies at the wrong level. Oh, I agree entirely. For the GitOps part, you should just, you're wasting your time. I was thinking more of the applications that the developers are writing. Oh, okay. The policies that they're like helping them create fine-grained policies is still hard. Like you, uh, I don't know who was commenting, but I had the same experience with the I, I am, um access analyzer, analyzer policy generation, it was also just too fine-grained for that purpose. So it's a problem that still needs to be kind of solved yeah, in yeah. terms of making it easier for developers. 
there isn't a good solution. Yeah, it makes total sense for that. Yeah. All right. Uh, any final questions uh, today before we start wrapping things up? I'm curious about OpenStack and Pulumi and Terraform. Has anybody tried it? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Because they both, so the, so there there are there's support in both of them, right? But. I like the idea of Pulumi in theory. Uh, yeah, we've been playing with the idea of going to Pulumi. Yeah, I think. Uh, we were talking to one of our internal BUs and they they adopted Plumi. We were asking them a lot of the whys. And they said one of the biggest uh, things I like about it the most is just how well it handles everything. Um, you know, it it, it it can handle all your stuff like you normally do with Terraform. It can talk to AWS directly. You can do your uh, Kubernetes management, you know, all that all in one tool. And they use that and deploy everything with one tool, one stack, one language, one everything. And they said that you know they've even gotten away from Jenkins and all that. They're using uh, Git Actions and and Git Runners. Nice. I set up some servers by hand this week, and I wanted to do it in Terraform, but I was told no. So I'm just going to do it in Pulumi. Yeah. <laughs> because why so, not? <laughs> so my struggle with Pulumi is still that um, for it, it makes a lot of sense. I think for a company looking to build everything in house internally. Uh, and they can standardize on one language. But what does a company that does consulting that needs to build a reusable corpus of kind of knowledge and libraries do? Uh, you can't build it you know, five times in TypeScript, JavaScript, Python, Go, and C Sharp. And the whole premise of Pulumi is that you do it in the language you're comfortable with. And yes, Pulumi can talk across languages, what scares me about that is if it's properly tested in every context. Well, I, yeah, but my my point is that's not even let's not even go there because that's not gonna no one's gonna do that. It doesn't make sense to do it. So that means that uh, it, it is really only suitable for either one language. Uh, and building a library that's reusable across companies uh, for that. Or a company just has to build everything in-house and it's going to be always a snowflake. And there's a wider point there too, that, hey, even if you are building things in-house, if you are a Golang shop and you're writing all your Plumium Golang, but then you want to go and look at what others are doing in the open source community or or elsewhere, they might be writing it in Python, and then you're a Golang engineer who needs to re-engineer re some, some Python into Golang, and I don't know. Um, I'm very much well, of the same mind with you, Is there a translate for computer languages? <laughs> well, and I, I remember seeing recently that Pulumi is now supporting a decorative uh, mode yeah. based on YAML. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, that's really 
interesting because I have to say, even with a background in software engineering, and I've been software engineering for like 20 years, um, I still love the decorative aspect when it's not contorted with, you know, complicated uh, um, accessing of uh, index zero, you know, uh, enabled and disabled resources. But uh, overall, the, the HCL is, is so much easier to, to rock than, say, the equivalent Java uh, yeah. CDK, you know, that, that I've seen that I've used for, for months uh, at a time. Um, so if I, if I were, if personally, I were to go to something like Boomi, which also seems very uh, interesting, uh, I, that's what I would look at first is how much can I do declaratively and only go into the code level uh, when I have to, when it really simplifies, you know, the declaration layer, which which right now can be one of the limitations of Terraform. Yeah, well, I think, and the, some of the issues, like we were talking to them, to the BU was, you know, they said one of the main reasons they went with it was the fact that with Plumi, especially uh, for them doing types, a lot of TypeScript in uh, C Sharp, and they, and they were a primarily a Python shop. And he said, um, in his, in his mind when working with it, stay away from Python, stick with and go with TypeScript or C sharp because of the programmatic side of things and doing the logic with looping and things like that you can do or, and that's kind of one of the issues with Terraform is it doesn't really handle that well and easily, you know, when you're trying to create a lot of resources, loop through naming, things like that, where he said that with TypeScripting and with, um, C sharp, he could actually do that very well and easy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could see that, you know, if, if it was easy to refactor those kinds of little loops in a few places and then it generates files for you and then you can worry about the rest declaratively, to, to me, that would be the the ultimate, you know, balance. Yeah. Kind of like mix yeah. the two. Yeah. I can say I'm not a big fan of this. It, it, it gives me nightmares of cloud formation. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, no, I Excited about it. I was excited when I saw, okay, yeah, this is simple. Okay, I got you. You got me. You got me. And then I started seeing, oh, CloudFormation. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting if you were to have um, reusable components or, yeah. you know, root modules, and then you use the declarative syntax to actually invoke them. That, that looks yeah. interesting. But yeah, I'll say one thing about Palumi is that I'm, I'm now a little bit it sounds like it's kind of a dumpster fire of a company in terms of like internally, like they just lost all of their um, DevRel people. Uh, and at HashiConf, they were posting posters and were like actively doing like kind of guerrilla marketing stuff, which kind of gave me a bad taste in my mouth. Huh. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I'm also like not for them. So like I'm totally biased, but yeah, I wasn't <laughs> happy with those things. That's funny. I could totally see a world though where this works with the declarative uh, interface works with Atmos. Just saying. <laughs> All right. Well, we are out of time for today. Actually, over time. So thank you so much, everyone, for uh, participating today in our office hours. Uh, if you haven't yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, say hello to my dog. Uh, go to YouTube.com/cloudposse and subscribe. Uh, and if you want to connect with me at some point, uh, just go over to linkedin.com slash in slash Osterman or book some time with Cloud Posse if you're interested to see if we can help you out. So with that said, everyone have a great rest of your week and talk to you next week.